Hi. Hello. Welcome to American Library's Dewey Decibel Podcast. I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Library's Magazine, the magazine of the American Library Association, and I'm your host for this new podcast series. Uh, we're really excited about this new adventure, everybody here at American Libraries, and we'll hope that you'll join us each month for fun, in-depth conversations with librarians, writers, scholars, thinkers, and other luminaries about a plethora of topics. Um, now, everybody here at Lab American Libraries, we've been talking about uh, launching a podcast series for years. And now that we've started, now that we're, we're deep in it, now that we're in the trenches, I really like to say it's been an interesting, fascinating process putting a whole podcast episode together. It's not an unfamiliar world to a writer, editor, and a journalist, really. Um, planning, creating stories, conducting interviews, talking to everyone from staff across the American Library Association to our interview subjects across the library world. Um, it's really, it's what we do best. And uh, we're amped for this podcast. We really are, sincerely. Uh, now that said, podcasting is new. Uh, it's a new world for us. It's, it's new for me. Uh, we're learning. We're finding our place in this podcasting landscape. So please bear with us. Ignore any audio snaps and pops you hear, uh, verbal quirks, um, probably on my end, and bumps in the road should they pop up. But thank you, regardless. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining me on that road to our first episode. I promise you an interesting ride. So let's do it. Um, the Association for Library Collections and Technical Services launched Preservation Week today, April 24th. So what better way to celebrate and recognize both the need for preservation efforts and those who take up the reins than by talking with three people who devoted their lives to the cause. Today on Dewey Decibel, we talked to Brad Meltzer, best-selling author and host of Brad Meltzer's Decoded and Lost History on the History Channel. Michelle Clunan, she's Dean and Professor Emirata at Simmons College School of Library and Information Science and the author of many works on historic preservation. And we also speak with Michael Whitmore, Dean of the Folger Shakespeare Library. And he talked with us about the current tour of Shakespeare's first folios that are traveling to libraries and museums across the U.S. right now uh, to coincide with the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. Fascinating stuff. But first, before we do all of that, Let's talk about ALA Annual. You know what I'm talking about. It's that time of the year again. You can kind of feel it. Feel it in the air, can't you? Thousands, thousands of your most motivated, committed, imaginative colleagues will be at the 2016 ALA Annual Conference and Exhibition in Orlando, Florida, June 23rd to 28th. Now, you can just ask anyone who's been to Annual, and they can tell you. This is where the library world meets to expand their networks, build knowledge, and improve the profession. And honestly, it's always a great time. I've been going the past few years, and it's, it's awesome. You'll make connections. You'll get the latest news on products, services, technologies, and new books in the exhibit hall. And you, honestly, you'll just go back to your library and your home with tools and ideas to help you do your job better. What, what could really be better than that? Oh, and the speakers. We cannot forget the speakers. Uh, joining us in Orlando this year are Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Eric Dyson, Diane Guerrero, Margaret Atwood, Brad Meltzer, Holly Robinson, Pete, Maya Jennings, I'm sorry, Maya Penn, Jazz Jennings, um, and on and on and on. You really can't miss this, people. Um, find more information and register for the 2016 ALA Annual Conference and Exhibition in Orlando at alaannual.org. Don't miss it. We'll see you there. Brad Meltzer is a busy man. He really is. Um, he's the author of more than 20 books many of which are set deep in the world of historic preservation, 
including the New York Times bestselling thrillers The Inner Circle and The Book of Fate, among many, many others. Uh, he writes nonfiction, children's books, comic books. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter recently put him on the, its list of t Hollywood's 25 most powerful authors, and he even has a book coming out in June. You've seen Brad on TV. He is the host of History Channel series Brad Meltzer's Lost History and Brad Meltzer's Decoded. Um, and he's also the honorary co-chair of Preservation Week this year. It's the second year in a row that he's held the position. If that kind of um, illustrates his, his dedication to the cause. Um, I spoke with Brad recently. He spoke with us about preservation. It's a topic near and dear to his heart, as I just said, and how it impacts his life and work. So let's just jump right into this. Now, this is your um, your second year as the uh, honorary chair of Preservation Week. I guess, as a broad question, what does preservation mean to you, both, I guess, professionally and personally? You know, I think for preservation, it is is almost the, the direct definition of history, or at least how we collect it. And if we don't preserve, then there is nothing to point to. There is no proof that it happened. And... Uh, without that, we are absolutely all really screwed. Um, and, you know, I think for on a larger level, people think that history is a bunch of dates and facts that you memorize. And that's not what history is at all. History is a selection process, and it chooses every single one of us every single day. And the only question is, you know, do you hear the call? And I think when it comes to librarians especially when it comes to preservation, um, we do appreciate that this is the job. That is our call. That's what, mm -hmm. you know, we are We are the keepers of that history. And um, if you don't have the keepers, you don't have the history. So for me, that sense of preservation is everything. I think also, quite honestly, I'm just a natural pack rat, so how could I not do this one? Preservation and libraries and archives, they're, they're integral parts of, of your work itself, both um, – um, for your fiction work and your television work, and some of your characters, they are archivists, um, you know, Beecher White, I guess, being the obvious example. There, why did you choose an archivist in, in archives and libraries, um, both as a protagonist for your work and in settings? What, what drew you to that? Yeah, I mean, listen, I probably reveal far more about my own nerdiness uh, when I say it, but it just, you know, I, what the funny thing was is the first time anyone asked me, they said, you're a thriller, you know, Beecher White is an archivist, and how could you do that? And that's, you know, the nerdiest profession of all time. And I was like, well, not to me. To me, mm -hmm. that's the coolest. I mean, and I got it because I went down to the National Archives, and I met all the archivists there, and I just thought they had the coolest job ever. I mean, they were literally walking and getting to read up close and touch and look at and scan um, the amazing documents that were in the hands of these incredible people. In fact, in the new book, was based on the, one of the very, those very first visits. I remember being in what they call in the National Archives one of the treasure vaults, and they mm -hmm. pulled out this little sheet of paper. It looked almost like a, an oversized index card, and it was an oath of allegiance. That back right as the Revolutionary War was getting underway, George Washington lined everyone up and said, I need you to take an oath of allegiance, saying that you promise you're going to work for this, this brand-new country we're fighting for. And he numbered them in the corner. So George Washington signed the first one with a little number one in the corner, and then would you ever sign number two, three, four? This one was number five, and it was signed by Benedict Arnold. Oh, wow. And here was this moment with a real signature and the swirly cursive and uh, – 
And, you know, in that moment, Benedict Arnold wasn't some guy in, a, in an old history book, but he was a man who stood on this day and dipped, you know, this pen into ink and signed and swore and promised, just like we have our soldiers sign today. I mean, they, you know, they, they don't sign, they raise their right hand and they promise when they enter the army that they will be loyal. But here was this man, he was suddenly real. And I just thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. How can I not do thrillers set in this world? How can I not pull this apart? It was far cooler than Indiana Jones um, was someone who I got to like, really touch it every day. And that's where I built the Inner Circle on and, and the Fifth Assassin and, and now the House of Secrets on. And for me, uh, I guess it was just because I found it to be interesting myself. And, and it was nothing more than that. I just thought it was, it was cool. The National Archives and, and, and truly librarians across the country have just been so supportive when I need things. I go down to the, in the National Archives, obviously, I've set four books that are there now. Um, and, you know, I couldn't do my job without them. The archivist there will find, I will, and, you know, I will call them up and, you know, every crazy question from, do you have this document from George Washington to, I want to make the original revolutionary formula for invisible ink. Can you help me figure it out? Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, how, you know, what, what's a good way that if you have nothing else, how could you hide um, and reveal invisible ink? Uh, you know, having one archivist there saying, you know, one of the first things they used was was urine. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so awesome. Um, you know, the most disgusting thing I'd heard that day, but the coolest thing I'd heard that day. So, <laughs> um, archivist of the United States, David Ferriero, has, has become a dear friend and someone I lean on and, and regularly helps me kind of find what is that cool document no one knows about. And um, and even when I go on Twitter and Facebook, I'll have questions that are just so, my, you know, kind of really super laser focused in, in terms of a specialty, and there'll be some librarian out there who will go on Twitter and write back and say, here's what you need to know. In fact, when we were doing, I do this line of children's books, um, I'm Amelia Earhart, I am Abraham Lincoln, and we, we did one for I am Martin Luther King Jr. And there was a quote in the book that um, and is quoted. Dr. King is quoted over and over about you know sometimes uh, you know you have to do the right thing, but I couldn't source it. It was different in every place I saw it, and I finally put it on Twitter and said, "Can someone help me?" And in in five minutes, someone had found the original. I think it was at Oberlin where he had first given the speech and had the audio recording, and found me a link to it. And then I sat there in my office here in Florida. And thanks to the research skills of someone out there, um, they found this old preserved audio recording where I hit play and I heard with my own ears Dr. King's speech that day at the university. And I got oh. the quote perfectly. Right. And I got this because I got to hear it. And so to me, again, it all goes back to that sense of preservation, that sense of what you lose if you lose that. It, it is just gone. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brad, for for speaking with us uh, today. It's um, we really appreciate it. Uh, we love your work and uh, and all everything you're doing with Preservation Week and preservation in general. Um, thank you so much. No, and thanks to you for doing this, and uh, thanks to every librarian out there. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. An absolute privilege, honestly, to speak with Brad. If you could only hear the geeking out over comic books that we did uh, that ended up on the cutting room floor, um, actually, it's probably best that you don't hear any of that. But um, Always a great time talking to Brad. Brad Meltzer's new book, The House of Secrets, will be released June 7. We all know about Hoopla, right? You know about Hoopla? I know about Hoopla. Let's talk about Hoopla. Hoopla Digital is a revolutionary digital service that brings hundreds of thousands of movies, 
full music albums, audiobooks, and more to your library. From Hollywood blockbusters to best-selling artists and authors, but you know, not just the hits, you can also find niche and hard-to-find titles as well. You'll find them all on Hoopla. Hoopla Digital can be a part of everyday life for everyone. And today, that includes kids with the new Hoopla Kids mode setting. The sights, the sounds, there's so much to explore and discover, and it's all for kids and families. Hoopla Kids Mode is the gateway to a multi-format family digital media experience. All the content, books, video, music has been selected and brought together in one place to give kids and families an environment where young minds can explore and discover the world around them safely through media. Check out the Hoopla Kids Mode on Hoopla. As they say, it's a Hoopla happy place for everybody. For more information, visit HooplaDigital.com today. Our next guest, Michelle Clunan, is one of the country's foremost preservation scholars. Um, she's been at Simmons College School of Library and Information Science in Boston since 2002, where she now serves as D uh, Dean Emerita and Professor. Uh, previously, she was Chair and Associate Professor of the Department of Information Studies at UCLA. Uh, she's worked at the Newberry Library, Brown University, Smith College as a conservator, preservation librarian, and a special collections curator. Uh, she's published extensively in the areas of preservation, book trade, and publishing history, including the ALA editions titled Preserving Our Heritage, Perspectives from Antiquity to the Digital Age, which ALA editions released last year. Uh, her most recent publications have concerned the preservation of digital media and the cultural, moral, and ethical dimensions of preserving cultural heritage. Um, I spoke with Michelle recently about current trends in preservation, efforts to save antiquities lost to war, and much, much more. Uh, we began our conversation by talking about what preservation means to her, both personally and professionally. Preservation has a very broad meaning to me, and it's very closely connected with stewardship. It's the care of our, our collections and the institutions that we work in, but more generally, it's the, it's the care of cultural heritage materials of all types. Um, that we find in the world, mm -hmm. statues, books, works of art, archival materials, and although this hasn't been a focus of, um, of preservationists who work in the built environment, I think that we will be working more closely in future with people in the environmental movement. I think something that um, when I was looking through your book, uh, reading your book, um, Preserving Our Heritage, which ALA released, uh, ALA Editions, and I think that's something some of our listeners will be surprised to learn is the um, the, the scope, the, the deep historical scope of preservation and conservation. The book uh, it gathers um, uh, writings dating back as far as 750 B.C., um, on the importance of keeping documents for future use, and you have uh, writings from Jefferson, Shakespeare, Shelley, Vitruvius, the Greeks and Romans. Uh, can you speak a bit, bit about that, the uh, the importance of, of of past efforts in preservation? And actually, when you were researching the book, what surprised you the most? Well, to answer the first part of your question, I think as long as we have created records, we needed to find ways to preserve them. Um, mm -hmm. With early archives, for example, in the Mesopotamia, in Mesopotamia, we needed to preserve records which uh, were legal, uh, and that need, you know, exists to the current day. What surprised me, I guess, is that the more I study preservation, 
the more I find um, connections to all endeavors of life. So, for example, in my mm -hmm. new book, I've written a, a chapter on um, cultural genocide, and that's something we're seeing very much played out in Syria, for example. It's not mm -hmm. just a question of conquering people, but um, expropriating their culture and history. So that's something I certainly never thought about a number of years ago. Another thing I've been thinking about, once again, is connections across all sectors of professionals who deal with preservation in one way or another. So, for example, I've been rereading John Ruskin, who was an artist and a critic, wrote about uh, buildings and the preservation of them, but interestingly wrote an essay on um, the problems that were inherent in air pollution, and this was in the 19th century. He painted and drew a lot, and he noticed a change in cloud formations over 50 years because he kept such meticulous hmm. records. Nobody tends to think about links between these heritage sectors going back so far, I think. You mentioned the, the, uh, the efforts to preserve uh, antiquities and such destroyed by war, you mentioned Syria. And we've seen recently just in the news with people using 3D printers and 3D modeling to recapture works, um, preserve works destroyed by ISIS and the Taliban. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, technology has always been a vital component of preservation, of course, but um, is, there, is, is there anything new exciting you in the terms of history, uh, historic preservation uh, moving forward in the future technology-wise? I think what excites me most is the whole range of strategies that we're using. So we can now look at um, burial sites or archaeological sites from satellites. We can digitize and now in 3D um, sites and artifacts. We can digitize mm -hmm. manuscripts. And actually the digitization of endangered manuscripts goes back to the Jeffersonian ideal that creating lots of copies keeps stuff safe, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That's what um, Stanford has called their LOCKS project, which was partially inspired by Jefferson. The idea that if we have lots of copies, we won't lose things in their entirety. Of course, we will lose the original sometime, and original documents carry a lot of meaning. But at least a surrogate is better than nothing at all. So we mm -hmm. have technology coming to aid in, in these parts of the world that are so endangered right now. But then we also have people-to-people -people activities. There's an organization called Heritage for Peace that um, is based in Girona, Spain, and they've done some on-the-ground work in Syria. And right now I'm trying to gather as much information I can about Syria um, from Groups. I mean, individuals can do things to preserve heritage. We don't tend to think about it that much, but sometimes it is the most basic level of preservation that is the most effective. Yeah, I think that's um, all we have time for today, Michelle. Um, I just wanted to thank you again for speaking with us during Preservation Week, and, uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. That was Michelle Clunan. Dean Emirata and professor at Simmons College School of Library and Information Science. 
Sincerely, people, really, you must read Preserving Our Heritage, her book Preserving Our Heritage. Um, I don't say this lightly, but it really is a monumental work that will really change how you understand both preservation and the history of the historic record. It's an important work. Check it out. But first, I have an important question to ask. Who is Overdrive? It's a good question. Overdrive offers a catalog of over 3 million ebooks, audiobooks, streaming video, and periodicals with support for all major computers and devices. All of their digital media is available on a single platform, streamlining the user experience and staff management. And the best part? With Overdrive, patrons can access your collection 24 7. All your ebooks, audiobooks, periodicals, and streaming videos available day or night because there's no such thing as a typical patron. Check them out at overdrive.com. As I mentioned at the top of the program, 2016 marks the 400th anniversary of William Shakespeare's death. So it's really not surprising that the Bard of Avon or William Shakespeare would be in the news this year. But what's really surprising, at least to me, is just how much he's in the news. Um, an investigation has charted a new Channel 4 documentary, Bridge Channel 4, um, has revealed that most likely Shakespeare's skull is not, repeat, not with the rest of his body in a Stratford burial place. Also, another copy of the first folio, that first collection of Shakespeare's work published in 1623, was recently discovered in a home library on the Isle of Bute in Scotland. And speaking of those first folios, the Folger Shakespeare Library, in partnership with ALA and the Cincinnati Museum Center, is currently undertaking a national traveling exhibition called First Folio, the book that gave us Shakespeare. Now, this exhibition is sending copies of the first folio from the Folger Collection to all 50 states, Washington, D.C., and also Puerto Rico. And these locations include 23 museums, 20 universities, five public libraries, three historical societies, and a theater. Now, I was lucky enough to speak with Michael Whitmore, who's the dean of the Folger Shakespeare Library, about this monumental year in Shakespearean history and scholarship, and also about the intricacies of that first folio tour. There's so much that goes into it. It's really crazy. Um, it was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Again, as we do with Michelle Clunan, we started with Michael's thoughts on preservation. Preservation is your access strategy for the unborn. What it means is that people, people need to use the materials today because it, it helps them keep the connection with the importance of our physical um, material past, and we don't want that to die out. But we have to balance that against the the opportunity that we want someone to have four, five, ten generations from now to also have access to that um, resource. And so it's a it's a way that I think about how to handle something like um, the first folio, which is that it's a precious it's a pre precious artifact, and that people um, really should have the opportunity to keep working with first folios and seeing them. Uh, potentially hundreds of years from now, but that isn't the only consideration. There also needs to be access today, and so we at the Folger think very carefully about that balance, and there's a lively conversation between curators and conservators about how we make those choices and decisions. Can you 
just for our listeners, very briefly, just describe the the importance of the first folio, and and actually describe you have um, 82 of the remaining 233 folios in existence at the Folger Library. Can you describe yes. physically um, the condition that that these editions are in, and 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 since you're taking these on tour, um, what considerations mm-hmm. did you have to to take into mind um, to protect this, this these precious um, works? So there are 233 known copies of the first folio of a print run of, we think, probably around 700. They were um, corrected as they were printed, which means that when they assembled the sheets to create this large format folio book, they took uncorrected and corrected sheets and mixed them together. That means that every first folio is unique. They uh, have... Some of them have the corrected spellings or corrected pages. Others don't. And that was one of the reasons why the Folgers collected the first folio, because they knew that it would need to be studied. They collected 82 copies of this book. And once they were passed around, say, 10, uh, they were ahead of any other institution. So they really did focus on this book. It is the sole source for 18 of Shakespeare's plays, including Macbeth and Twelfth Night and The Winter's Tale. So it really is a monument, and uh, the people who created it knew that. So when we have the opportunity to show the book, we really do want people to come face-to-face with the source of some of the most influential and powerful uh, plays and uh, poetic kind of creations in history, and and that's important. The question of how we prepared for the tour, uh, the answer is that it, we, we prepared a lot. Uh, several years ago, we began looking at the folios to determine which ones would be travel ready. So we were fortunate enough to have 82 to choose from, but we chose we chose copies that we felt could move from state to state, and there's also what we would call a light budget for every opening because, as your listeners probably know, light uh, is is going to slowly degrade um, and erase the print on printed pages. So we have a budget for all of those openings, and the opening is to the to-be-or-not-to-be speech. And so part of preservation will mean that once those books have gone on the road, um, they will not be exhibited again for a certain amount of time. We also created special traveling cases for the first folio and special exhibition cases for the first folio so that we feel it is safe and that we can move this book around the country responsibly. And we had the help of the American Library Association. Uh, it, the ALA was crucial in helping us solicit and then decide among the applicants from the 50 states and two territories, each of whom had to propose not only the programming and the attendance goals, but also had to talk about what their security situation was and um, what their plan would be for engaging the community around the visit of this book. Excellent. Yeah, this, it's, it's, been, it's been really exciting this year since it is you know, the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. Knowing that the first folios happen, all the the programming at Folger, um, I just started reading um, Shakespeare's first folio, Four Centuries of an Icon, the book oh, uh, great. by Emma yeah. Smith that's coming out in June. Yeah. Um, and um, I just heard on NPR 
the uh, what was it? There was um, it was a story on Shakespeare's skull being yes. um, missing yes. supposedly. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's 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 just wonderful that 400 years after uh, his death that um, he resonates. I mean, it's, of course, he, Shakespeare's ubiquitous, but the fact that it's really he's everywhere now is I think exciting, both for librarians, mm-hmm. preservationists. Uh, curious but just you know, the world at large it's it's really great yeah and and there are still more to know and more to learn right? this is mm-hmm. a writer we're not done with uh we learned that yeah. when we did life of an icon our curator of manuscripts heather wolf is is perhaps the only person who's an expert in handwriting and, and renaissance documentary culture to look at all the materials uh at once and and really weigh the records that we have and um, she's learned new things about Shakespeare, and that's been really exciting. Um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a really interesting experience to to see so clearly that we're not done with Shakespeare yet. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, this is again it's Michael yep. Whitmore with the uh, Folger Shakespeare Library, and uh, thanks so much. It's been wonderful talking to you today. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Fascinating. Absolutely. Again, many thanks to Michael Whitmore, Dean of the Folger Shakespeare Library, for speaking with us. First Folio, the book that gave us Shakespeare, is currently on tour right now as we speak. Visit ala.org slash programming slash first folio sites for more information and for dates. Do that right now. Well, that wraps episode one of American Library's Dewey Decimal Podcast. Honestly, I really can't thank you enough for spending this time with us, really. And I hope to find you back here next month with us when we look at a very, very serious issue, library security. I'll be talking to a host of experts about the subject, including Steve Albrecht. He's the author of Library Security, Better Communications, Safer Facilities. This is really an important topic, people. It really is. It's vital. Please, please come back and join us. Um, If you have any questions, comments, future show ideas, fan mail, hate mail, anything at all, really, Shoot me an email at deweydecibel at ala.org, or you can leave a comment on the American Libraries page on Facebook. I really look forward to hearing from each and every one of you, so please make my day and send me things. Thanks again. I'm Phil Moorhart from American Libraries Magazine, and this has been American Libraries' Dewey Decibel Podcast. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. Um, you know, the most disgusting thing I'd heard that day, but the coolest thing I'd heard that day is...